Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 343. Today's big Bible question, are Christians about to come under severe persecution? Well, hello, friends. A happy Friday to you. Today, we're going to be reading 2 Chronicles 3 and 4, Nahum 2, Luke 18, and 1 John 3. And our focus is in 1 John 3, which is a bit of a surprise if you know me, because the parable of the persistent widow, I think, is my absolute favorite parable of Jesus. And I rarely pass up an opportunity to talk about it. Okay, who am I fooling? I need to talk about it at least a little bit. Because uh, we haven't talked about the parable of the persistent widow enough this year. So here it is, the easiest to understand parable of Jesus. You find it in Luke 18, 1 through 8, which reads, Now he told them a parable on the need for them to always pray and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly give them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, how do I know that this is the easiest to understand parable of Jesus? Well, because Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us exactly what this parable means right off the bat. No question about it. It means we should always pray and never give up. Jesus gives us this picture, this model of a widow in great need who literally pesters and nearly wears out an unjust judge by her frequent coming to him and asking for justice in whatever case she has. The unjust judge finally gives her justice because he's just absolutely worn out by her repeated asking, and Jesus brings home the point to us. Will God, who is a just judge, not an unjust judge, how much more will God, who is a just judge, not do the same for us when we come to him in prayer? He absolutely will. So, saints of God, be reminded to be persistent in prayer, always praying and never giving up, just like we talked about a few days ago when we talked about importunity. Jesus is encouraging us. Now, as a dad, I don't encourage my kids to ask me until I give in, because honestly, it just wears me out. But Jesus is telling us to ask the Father over and over again. Again, the meaning of the parable, always pray and never give up. So, saints of God, you and I, let us be persistent. Let us keep praying, always praying, night and day, never giving up. All right, back to 1 John 3. In this passage, we have a bit of bad news, maybe something to pray night and day about. In 1 John 3.13, it says, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Well, it's a very short statement from John, and he doesn't hardly elaborate on it at all, but it's sandwiched in the middle of a series of commands for Christians to walk in love for each other. So let's read the whole passage and then discuss this likely hatred we apparently are going to be facing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. 
The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him, and the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. So, as I've probably mentioned here before, my family and I have lived in California for the last almost three years, not quite, moving here from Alabama, where we had spent the entirety of our lives previously. Moving from a more conservative state to a more liberal state, politically and otherwise, has been pretty interesting, and every now and then, friends from back home ask us about the atmosphere out here on the West Coast. In fact, during an online Bible study tonight, just a few hours ago as I record this, With uh, friends from the South, my wife was asked how much persecution we face out here in Cali. Well, I've thought about that question quite a bit because I've been asked it several times. It is certainly different here in Salinas, California. We're in barely Northern California, about, uh, if you don't know where Salinas is, it is about eight miles from the ocean. Uh, really close to Monterey, if you've ever heard of Monterey, it's where John Steinbeck grew up, and we're about an hour away from San Jose, maybe an hour and 20 minutes away from San Francisco. So right next to Silicon Valley, all of that kind of good stuff. It's different here. Less churches, less people in church, a lot more people (laughs) per square inch, uh, and a much more secular atmosphere in many, many ways. Are Christians being persecuted here? Now look, I'm sure that is happening to some degree, but I'll be honest. 
Living here in California, I certainly don't get the feeling that the politicians or anybody else has a particular axe to grind with Christians here. Is everything absolutely fair? I don't think so. I doubt it. In fact, I get frustrated sometimes at the businesses that are allowed to stay open while the church can only meet outside. That's frustrating. Is it persecution? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it rarely rises to the level of what the Bible would label as persecution. Now, that said, when I do read the Bible, I see numerous verses that teach something similar to 1 John 3.15. We shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us. I guess we probably should be surprised if it doesn't hate us. Seemingly, John is telling us that hatred from the world will be par for the course to be expected. Indeed, Paul addresses this particular dynamic even more strongly in a verse we've already read, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that sounds like a virtual guarantee right there. It doesn't mean we will be persecuted 100% of the time in 100% of the places we find ourselves, but it does seem we are guaranteed at least some persecution and we shouldn't be surprised if and when the world hates us. As you might expect, Jesus also warns us that we should expect persecution. In John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And even though it's a bit more of a general principle, not exactly directed towards hatred and persecutions, Paul does go around with Barnabas teaching the churches in Acts that they had planted. Uh, we, we read about it in verse four, uh, Acts 14.22. He says to them, it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, we should expect hardship, persecutions, and to be hated. How do we respond? Well, we've already discussed the commands of Jesus. We're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I know it's hard, but that's the Jesus way, and we have to do it. I think John also tells us how to respond here in verses 14 through 18. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. So we respond to hatred, not with hatred, but by with love and blessing, doubling down in particular on our active love for each other. A love that is expressed, says John, by sacrifice and actions and giving. So let me close this out with an encouraging word from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and a pastor and writer, who says this, By enduring temptation, you, as a living member of the body of Christ, have the honor of being conformed to your head. He suffered, now head as in head of the church, Jesus, the head of the church. He suffered being tempted, and because he loves you, He calls you to a participation of his sufferings and a taste of his cup. Not the cup of the wrath of God. He drank that cup alone and he drank it all. But in affliction, he allows his people to have fellowship with him. Thus, they fill up the measure of his sufferings and can say, as he was, so are we in the world. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that Satan rages against you. Should not the disciple be like his Lord? Can the servant expect or desire peace from the avowed enemies of his master? 
we are to follow his steps, and can we wish, if it were possible, to walk in a path strewed with flowers when he was strewed with thorns? Let us be in nothing terrified by the power of our adversaries, which is to them an evident token of punishment, but to us of salvation and the salvation of God. To us it is given not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. If we would make peace with the world, the world would leave us alone. If we would be content to walk in the ways of sin, Satan would give us no disturbance. But because grace has rescued us from his dominion and the love of God causes us to live to him alone, therefore the enemy, like a lion robbed of its prey, roars against us. He roars, but he cannot devour. He plots and rages, but he cannot prevail. He disquiets and causes anxiety, but he cannot destroy. If we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. In due time, he will bruise Satan under our feet. Make us more than conquerors in places where we shall hear the voice of war no more forever. Amen and amen, and thank God for John Newton. Well, let's keep reading Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon began to build the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. At the site, David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. These are the Solomon's foundations for building God's temple. The length was 90 feet and the width 30 feet. The portico, which was across the front, extending across the width of the temple, was 30 feet wide. Its height was 30 feet. He overlaid its inner surface with pure gold. The larger room he paneled with cypress wood overlaid with fine gold and decorated with palm trees and chains. He adorned the temple with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold of Parvain. He overlaid the temple, the beams, the thresholds, its walls and doors with the gold, and he carved cherubim in the walls. Then he made the most holy place. Its length corresponded to the width of the temple, 30 feet, and its width was 30 feet. He overlaid it with 45,000 pounds of fine gold. The weight of the nails was 20 ounces of gold, and he overlaid the ceiling with gold. He made two cherubim of sculptured work for the most holy place, and he overlaid them with gold. The overall length of the wings of the cherubim was 30 feet. The wing of one was seven and a half feet, touching the wall of the room. Its other wing was seven and a half feet, touching the wing of the other cherub. The wing of the other cherub was seven and a half feet, touching the wall of the room. Its other wing was seven and a half feet, reaching the wing of the other cherub. The wingspan of these cherubim was 30 feet. They stood on their feet and faced the larger room. He made the curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen, and he wove cherubim into it. The front of the temple, he made two pillars, each 27 feet high. The capital on top of each was seven and a half feet high. He had made chain work in the inner sanctuary and also put it on top of the pillars. He made a hundred pomegranates and fastened them into the chain work. Then he set up the pillars in front of the sanctuary, one on the right and one on the left. He named the one on the right Jachin and the one on the left Boaz. Chapter 4, verse 1. He made a bronze altar 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 15 feet high. Then he made the cast metal basin 15 feet from brim to brim, perfectly round. It was seven and a half feet high and 45 feet in circumference. The likeness of oxen was below it, completely encircling it, ten every half yard, completely surrounding the basin. The oxen were cast in two rows when the basin was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The basin was on top of them, and all their hindquarters were toward the center. The basin was three inches thick, and its rim was fastened like the brim of a cup or a lily blossom. 
it could hold 11,000 gallons. He made 10 basins for washing, and he put five on the right and five on the left. The parts of the burnt offering were rinsed in them, but the basin was used by the priests for washing. He made the 10 gold lampstands according to their specifications and put them in the sanctuary, five on the right and five on the left. He made 10 tables and placed them in the sanctuary, five on the right and five on the left. He also made a 100 gold bowls. He made the courtyard of the priests in the large court and doors for the court. He overlaid the doors with bronze. He put the basin on the right side toward the southeast. Then Huram made the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. So Huram finished the work that he was doing for King Solomon in God's temple. Two pillars, the bowls and the capitals, on top of the two pillars. The two gratings for covering both bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars. The 400 pomegranates for the two gratings. Two rows of pomegranates for each grating covering both capitals' bowls on top of the pillars. He also made the water carts and the basins on the water carts, the one basin and the twelve oxen underneath it, the pots, the shovels, the forks, and all their utensils. Huram Abi made them for King Solomon for the Lord's temple. All these were made of polished bronze. The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Sukkoth and Zeradah. Solomon made all those utensils in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the equipment in God's temple, the gold altar, the tables on which to put the bread of the presence, the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold to burn in front of the inner sanctuary according to specifications, the flowers, lamps, and gold tongs of purest gold, the wick trimmers, sprinkling basins, ladles, and firepans of purest gold, and the entryway to the temple, its inner doors to the most holy place, and the doors of the temple sanctuary of gold. Nahum chapter 2. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel, though the ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches, the shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire. On the day of its battle preparations and the spears are brandished, the chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure. An abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. Where is the lion's lair, or the feeding ground of the young lions, where the lion and lioness prowled, and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away? The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its dens with a kill and its lairs with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Finally, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people, and a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. 
Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to elect his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, Let the little children come to me, and don't stop them, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he had become sad, Jesus said how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, Look, we have left what we had and follow you. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Then he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road, begging, hearing a crowd passing by. He inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet, but he kept crying out on the moor, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And praise indeed do we give to the name of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your kindness and goodness. And friends, may you know his kindness and goodness today. May he he shine his light on you and guide you and give you wisdom and blessing in Jesus' name. Good day and Godspeed.